This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Afternoon, everyone. You all good? Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> good to know. Good to know. Um, welcome to the International, Edinburgh International Book Festival this afternoon. Uh, my name is Teddy Jameson. I'm a writer for the Herald and Sunday Herald, and it's uh, my pleasure to be your chair for the next hour and uh, introduce our two guests, which I'll do in a moment. Um, it's a double pleasure because I think the first thing to say is it's great that the, the festival, after last year doing the, the whole strip strand, has kind of continued that this year. Um, I think it's really exciting that it's still here and, and there's still events like this coming on. And secondly, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to do it because, in a sense, we're, I think, this afternoon just rediscovering a book that was a bit lost when it came out originally. Um, White Death, which is um, fresh from the printers. Charlie Very fresh. Very <laughs> Charlie and Robbie is here. I hadn't even seen a copy before uh, about 10 minutes ago, actually. Um, it originally came out in 1998, um, self-published effectively, I think. Yeah, totally, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we 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 formed a collective to, to publish that, it with yeah. some other other friends that were um, had an equal love at the time for the European comics industry. That that was what it was styled for originally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it came out, sold some copies, disappeared. There was I think one more reprint in America, and that, and that was it. So it's it's really exciting in this centenary year of the, the First World War to find a book that managed to actually discover a little corner of the war that maybe not so many people know about. Um, so so it's, as I say, it's a real pleasure to be here. And maybe I should do some introductions to get us started with. Just a reminder, phone's off if no one has uh, still got them on, that'd be good. Um, on my right here with Charlie Adler. Charlie, um, you may know, you may know. Um, when he started doing work on White Death, actually, he had just come off a very successful um, run on a comic book called X-Files based on the old TV series and in a way things have come full circle because now he's the artist of uh, a comic that's become quite successful TV program and I'm sure you may have heard of it, The Walking Dead. Um, Charlie's also done lots of, lots of other uh, stuff but White Death I think maybe marks a beginning of something for, for both Charlie and Robbie in terms of realising what graphic novels could do. Uh, from Shrewsbury? Is it Shrewsbury or Shrewsbury? I never know. Depends what side of the river you live on. <laughs> um, I call it Shrewsbury, but I'm posh. So there we go. So you'll learn something today. Uh, and Charlie has worked with Robbie before. Robbie is um, originally from Helensborough. Um, when I interviewed him for the Herald last year, I, I introduced the piece by saying that he's one of those things that Scotland is actually still good at. Um, you know, we might not do be good at football or running empires anymore, but we can still turn out Turner Prize winners and comic book creatives, and Robbie is very much one of those. And as long as there's rain in Scotland, there will be good writers, I think, because <laughs> you have to stay in and do something. <laughs> so Robbie has done, uh, you know, 2008. In fact, they both have worked on Robbie's creation and Nikolai Dante together. Um, you've done Superman, you've done quite a few of the big characters. Yeah, pretty much every yeah. kind of tentpole. To, to, to a very small degree, yeah, for, yeah. both DC and Marvel. Exactly. And, and, and Rob has obviously done Judge Dredd. Um, but we're here today to talk about White Death. Oh, I, I should say that uh, Charlie's coming back this evening to talk about Walking, De Walking Dead. Still some tickets left if you're interested. Um, but White Death is, I, I think, really interesting for, for two reasons. I mean, it's, it's interesting because of... Um, it's an example of old-fashioned craft. It's a, it's a lovely example of, of two, two, a writer and an artist 
really discovering what they can do with the form and really stretching themselves. I think, uh, I think if, you, if you've had the chance to read it or if you get the chance to read it later on, um, it's a real sense of someone really spreading their wings a little. So if it didn't set the world alight when it, when it was published originally, I think it's, it's, it started some flame, certainly. Um, so let's please put our hands together and welcome Charlie and Robbie. You can see some images from the book above our heads and the format today is just going to, I'm going to have a chat with, with, with our guests and then um, at a point I'll open the floor and you're more than welcome to, to talk and ask anything you like. But we'll, we'll specifically talk about White Death, we'll talk about the history behind it and the, hist the historical events it covers as well, if that's okay. But I wanted to start off with um, just asking, how did you first meet the pair of you? When did you first meet? Can you remember? Oh God! Oh. <laughs> a drunken evening at a London comics convention, probably amazingly enough, about twenty years ago. Which, considering we probably only look about twenty-five, <laughs> is um, hard to believe. Um, yeah, I had seen. I think Charlie started out in comics a couple of years before me, so I, I, I had seen his artwork appearing in Judge Dredd and, and various comics. And when I started as a freelancer and getting stories bought. He was one of the artists I, I quite fancied meeting because I quite fancied working with him. Uh, and I guess that would that you develop a friendship after you meet him. Uh, yeah, I, I hope I'm not being presumptuous no, by no, saying no, no, friendship no, in case he <laughs> shoves me off my chair. Well, I'm glad you ended up adding on to the fancy bit there. We were, anyway. um, but I, I, yeah, I just remember sort of encountering you and a bunch of other not to lump you all into one big uh, group, but a bunch of other Scottish creators who all seem to sort of go around in one big group together. Safety and, and in numbers. Yeah, yeah. We were in London. And, and I, I do remember sort of, you know, kind of not really differentiating between, you know, the, the sort of three or four of you for, for quite a while. You were just like the, the Scottish guys that would turn up, you know. And, uh, but then, then I finally did. <laughs> realising that you wrote and other people just drew and yeah. blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, it was just one of those things that kind of... I don't think there was any great moment. It was just... No, you just got to know people over the years. Yeah. And, and as a writer, obviously, when you write comics strips, um, when, when you write the scripts, uh, which basically your regular comic script looks very similar to a screenplay or a television script, but you can't do anything with that unless you have a, an artist to draw it. So, obviously... Writers are probably always on the lookout for artists, so uh, that was probably... Mm. I'd have been stalking Charlie, probably. <laughs> Can you remember the first thing you did together? White Death. White Death, White Death the first yeah, thing you was, actually yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I, yeah, sorry, carry on. Oh, well, we had talked about hmm. doing stuff, and I think we, that maybe something had fallen through at the magazine, and then Charlie was working on the X-Files comic at the time. Then I figured, well, we'll be on that for ages. But uh. well, and and you'd also got to know a group of friends that I was already sort of with um, a bunch of guys that um, we used to go to Angoulême together, which, if any of you don't know, is the biggest French uh, comics festival uh, in France, obviously, um, yeah, and. Uh, it is arguably bigger than even somewhere like San Diego, which is, they will say, is the biggest yeah, comics convention in, in the States. Um, and it takes over. Basically, it's a town of about oh, 80,000, 100,000 people. Not a big French town, but it literally takes over the whole town. Um, imagine this book festival times 100, and you've got Angoulême. 
And so we used to go there as fans for, for a while. Um, not not with you, Robbie, but no. the f- few years previous to us sort of really talking seriously about it. So we'd go there as fans, and then you sort of got to know everyone associated with yeah. that. And they'd already formed this little um, collective called Les Cartoonistes Dangereux. Uh, and they'd put out a few kind of um, little indie published mm. sort of uh, fanzines and things like that with a few cartoons just just to test the water. No one was particularly serious until White Death came along and everything came together because you knew everyone associated with late cartoonists. I, I became a sort of honorary member yeah. of Lee's Cartoonist Dangerous, even though I wasn't a cartoonist and I wasn't particularly dangerous. None of us were. You, you looked very tall and trip <laughs> over me or something. And, uh, you looked at us all and none of us were particularly no. dangerous. <laughs> so take us back to the late 90s. I want to just ask where you were in your own careers. You were just coming off X-Files, and which you hadn't really enjoyed, I guess. No. Um, the first year was pretty good, um, but the second year was just horrible. Um, I mean, I, I, in its, on one side, I was, you know, everything that was associated at the time with the X-Files was doing really well. Uh, you know, it was like a Midas touch of the X-Files. Yeah. So the comic book was selling, you know, thousands and thousands. So money-wise, it was great. But everything else-wise, it wasn't, you know, creatively, it was just becoming a... a just, just a, I was just hanging myself creatively with it in the end. So, by the time I, I left the book, um, you know, I, I was just so disillusioned with the whole process. And I also found that even though the book had sold, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands throughout the, my two-year run on it, um, I realised that the only people I, I thought I had a bigger cachet within the industry in terms of name, and I thought I'd easily just jump onto the next some other project from Marvel or DC. It didn't happen because I realised that the people who were buying all these comics, all, all these X Files comics, weren't comics fans. They were X Files yeah. fans, so they're going to the comic shops, just literally picking up the X Files and exiting as fast as they could without looking at anything else. So. I almost went back to square one, so it was even more disillusioning to come out of something like that, thinking, oh, I'm, I'm nice and secure in the industry, it's fine, and all of a sudden everything just went really quiet. So, um, yeah, it, 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 certainly the elements of working on the X-Files bled into, ironically, white death and just wanting to do something for myself and wanting to do something totally different. Mm. You approached, I think, Robbie just with the idea of doing something historical. Was that the idea? Yeah, I mean, all I had in my head at the time was, uh, after the X-Files, again, I thought, I want to do, and because of lay cartoonists and because of the the idea of doing something for Europe was kind of in my head as well, and I'd seen the European stuff, and that I was looking at that thinking wow, this is what I want to do. I don't really want to do superheroes or anything, which seemed to be the only other avenue to go down. Um, or going back and working for 2000 AD, as great as, as, as they are, it was like not exactly the world's greatest options. So um, I just thought, started sort of thinking about ideas in my head. And, and I can't actually remember the actual moment I came up with the idea of wanting to do something with charcoal and chalk. I think I must have seen... Um, Somebody, uh, some other artwork, somebody else, probably within 
the French market working in a similar material and thinking, oh, it'd be great to really sort of do something with with texture and, and form and just just really almost, I don't know, almost tactile mm. rather than that sort of very precise, you know, black and white pen and ink sort of thing. And um, so I formulated that, that idea of sort of formulating my head. I, I had this image of the first three pages and the last three pages. I don't know where that came from. I can't remember, but I had that in my head. And a vague inkling that it would be quite nice <laughs> for it to be set in some sort of war, just to suit the the, the style I was yeah. drawing in. And that's all I had. And then... And you brought along this idea. Yeah, well, I got a phone call out of the blue one day from Charlie to say, oh, uh, I'll just fancy working together on something. And I was thinking, oh, excellent. He's going to get me to do the X-Files and I'll <laughs> get a share of the royalties. <laughs> and then he said... Yeah, no, there's no money in it. We just want to self-publish things. But have you got any World War I stories? And I immediately say yes, which, you know, I always say yes when an artist asks me, a good artist asks me, if I have any stories about something. Well, in this case, I actually did, because um, probably not that long before that, I had watched a documentary on, I think, Channel 4 or BBC 2 about avalanches. And then for one little snippet of the documentary they mentioned that uh, in World War One, on the Italian and the Austro-Hungarian front which was the, the mountain regions between Italy and Austria uh, the opposing sides used to fire cannons uh, into the mountains to deliberately cause avalanches to try and wipe out enemy troops and they, they reckoned that something like 60,000 60, to 100,000 Troops were killed by avalanches in this region, which is a, you know, a, a phenomenal figure in my head, and it just always stuck in the back of my head because I thought, obviously, you know, the idea of war is seen at the best of times, but in this, the very fact that they then seem to be trying to turn nature into a weapon of war, just struck me as even more obscene, and it just rested in the back of my head as one of these little nuggets of an idea that you know. That's a good idea, but what am I going to do with it? And yeah, good timing. Charlie happened to turn up and ask, "Have you got any World War One stories?" And then, especially when he described, I've, got, I've been playing around doing. <coughs> he's not going to be the standard comic book pencils and inks. It's going to be a a combination of chalks and charcoals on a sort of grayscale paper. Uh, and I sort of thought, oh, well, that works really well for the idea of snow and dark mountains and the landscapes and just the avalanche, the whole concept, I thought, oh, I've got, I think I might have the perfect idea for it. <laughs> and it kind of developed from there. I think I went off. I don't think I, you hadn't shown me the, the your first three pages or even mentioned it. I don't know about that. Because no. I think I went off and um, I was actually in Italy in the holiday and uh, when I wrote out a very rough outline of the story, and you know, took the names of all the characters from a World War One memorial that was in the town that I, I was staying in, and I sent that off to you. And I think then, well, you come by, you sent these pages. You just drawn the, the first three pages. I thought, oh, well, they're brilliant. I can't claim credit for them because Charlie's just drawing them. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> but you know, sometimes it's nice that way because then I, I immediately just incorporated those. Hmm. The, 
those first three periods, the, that's the opening scene of the whole, and the closing scene as well. Um, I'd like to talk a bit about the history there that you, you mentioned, and, and this, this notion of avalanches as a weapon of war, I mean, how often was it used? Do you have any idea? How, how, no, how no, it, it's a very, from what I can get, I think there's, there's more information coming about, coming about out now. Um, in fact, a couple of years ago, there was a book written called The White War. Mm. Um, but at the time, there was, there was very little, uh, I, I could find very little research material on it. Um, it's just a little known. What it was, it was almost like the same idea as trench warfare, where you had these two sides stuck and moving a little bit forward, moving a little bit back, and you know, thousands and thousands of lives thrown away pointlessly in the middle of it. Except instead of trench warfare, this was played out in the mountain regions and the, the heights of the mountains. And um, it just all struck me as, why isn't this a better known part of? Mm. Uh, uh, you know, of the war. Um, well, let, let's talk a bit about research because obviously, you know, um, as you say, it isn't particularly well known. I mean, and this is in the days before Google, remember? Mm -hmm. My goodness. <laughs> what did we used to do back then? I can't remember. <laughs> read books and things. I you know, literally just read as many various histories of World War I. It would always be mentioned in just a page here or a page there. Um, and I mean, so long ago, I can't even remember what research stuff I, I read and I reread with the, the one book that I can think of that is set in that region is um, Ernest Hemingway's um, oh, Room of the Bell Tolls yeah no no the other, the other one, one. The, um, oh. oh no the who remembers what's the other Hemingway any, one any Hemingway A Farewell to Arms <laughs> sorry A Farewell to Arms is actually set in that it is in that period mm -hmm. and um, because Ernest Hemingway was actually a drove an ambulance in that, that time and in my original in my original idea for White Death, if it had been 200 pages instead of 100 pages, Ernest Hemingway would have turned up in a small <laughs> cameo, cameo appearance. Yeah. <laughs> As would Mussolini if I had had my original way, because Mussolini at the time uh, was a reporter. He was a war reporter and he covered uh -huh. the oh, conflict really? at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but um, I, I would have loved to have got there. But it was just for, I mean, we were self-publishing and, mm. well, basically. Charlie was self-publishing and then uh, uh, with his X-Files royalties and uh, putting his money where his mouth is and, and, and actually, and so it could only be a certain, you know. And this one takes more. off and you sell 100,000 copies, you can then give we us a director's cut. We can do that, we can do that. The director's cut, as they call it. 100 pages. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I remember, I can't remember the first year I got a computer but I don't think I had a computer even when we were doing this. Because um, I do remember a conversation with Stefan Petruka, who originally wrote The X-Files. I remember him, oh, it must have been a phone conversation, because that's the only way we must have communicated. Um, him actually saying, have you heard this thing about email? We can communicate you know, directly over computers and blah, blah, blah. I was thinking, well, no, that sounds too much like, I've got to go and buy a computer to do that. That seems ridiculous, you know. So. If I had a computer then, I probably wasn't using it to any degree then. So literally all my research was <laughs> the old style, buying books, going down to the library. I, I photocopied so much mm. stuff from the, well, I'd say so much stuff. There was only a limited amount I could photocopy yeah. on a specific, like Robbie was saying, on a, spe a specific tiny bit of the wall, which isn't that well documented. Yeah. 
So, God, if I had a Google image search now, it would have been so oh, yeah, much easier. Oh, yeah, I mean, I have, yeah. I have clicked and I've been doing it again and lots of stuff. Yeah. Up now, you think, oh, <laughs> well, if only we, you know, if we had that yeah, back then. Yeah. Well, you still were able to research, um, for example, early 20th century uh, condoms, which I was seen as a sex scene. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah don't, I bet again, that would, have, that would have come from the research that scene is the, it's the cheap gut the used condom, condom yeah. that had been handed down in the family, which <laughs> I, that would have came from a piece of research that I had read and, and, and just incorporated in it. Um, just in your own stories, I mean, in your own family stories, have you got kind of First World War stories where their kind of grandparents or great-grandparents who fought, served? Do you know? I don't. My, my particular family story goes back to World War II. I'm not, I'm, I'm really not that clued up personally on... World War One, I. I think I remember there was a grave we visited in a small town near near where I live, um, of I think a great a great grandfather that had fought in the First World War, but I'm not absolutely sure of his <coughs> his involvement. Mm. So I haven't really got any personal no. um, connections that I know of with with the Great War. No. Robbie, you anything? Um, nothing, nothing. I, mean, I, I certainly from where I'm. My dad's side, I think, you know, older relatives would have fought in World War One, but nothing that I really. Remember. I remember more stories of World War Two, yeah. and of, yeah. of, 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 you know, uncles of my dad had been there. But exactly, because it's, it's interesting. We're in the centenary year, and we and, and it is a war that's kind of almost beyond the edge of memory, isn't it? Really, mm. for, for most of, for most of us, not all of us, but mm. um, you know, we, we some of us will have grandparents who fought. I, I think I did have certainly. Um, but, but unfortunately, we're getting to that stage where time passes and, and it becomes... Well, yeah, history, it's, it's, it? it's a weird yeah. thing to be, to be when you were younger, you know, in your 20s, or you know, to, to have known possibly people that you know, had fought in, the, in, in World War I, and now it's almost beyond reach. Mm. And it is. It's weird to be part of uh, it, it becoming almost proper history. It feels like history when everyone's dead. Yeah, that's been involved with something. So the only way you can get information is through other media rather than actual personal mm. stories. It is kind of odd that way, isn't it? We're getting there with World War Two soon. Yeah, aren't we? We know, yeah, So I mean, I guess we're all of a similar age. So I, I guess anyone who's kind of forty, fifty up grew up with war comics. That was mm. part of the part mm. of the kind of terrain of our childhood. Victor Hotspur, all those things. Um, was those things you read as as kids? Or you reading American stuff instead? I personally was reading a lot more superhero, you know, Marvel comics. Um, I do remember picking up the odd, you know, those Commando comics, the little, um, the little form. Yeah, the DC Thompson ones, the format. I do remember, I don't know where I was, in some, some godforsaken Welsh seaside resort on, the, on those, uh, the penny, the, in an arcade, you know, the, I don't know what they're called, the ones, yeah, you put your money in and it's on a shelf and it, yeah, the shelf moves and it pushes the money out. I remember winning enough money on one of those to buy a Commando comic, which were on <laughs> sale, you know, at the front of the shop where this arcade was or whatever. But, uh, yeah, that, that was pretty much, I, I was slightly beyond, because when I got to reading things like 2000 AD and stuff, um, I, that would have been, you know, sort of late 70s, so I'd have been, you know, 13, 14, something like that. Just slightly, 
things like battle and the old, you know, the older action and stuff were just beyond my reach as a as a as as a pre-teenager or whatever. I didn't really encounter those until I came to appreciate them much further down the line. Well, I started reading things like the Hotspur, yeah, uh, which um, wouldn't have been a it would a mix of stories from historical adventure, war stories, science fiction, contemporary stuff. Mainly adventure comics was what I started off reading, not solely war comics. Well, I, I asked because I, I'm wondering, because it, growing up I remember the hospital in Victoria. Yeah. There was, it was quite jingoistic, it was quite imperialistic. Mm. I, I'm wondering what kind of responsibility you felt um, coming to tell this particular story, you know, kind of responsibility to history, I guess, in terms of how you approach a subject. You know, you're not talking about science fiction, it's not in the future, this, is, this happened. I mean, not this story, because it's fiction, but these yeah. events happened. Well, I think, I think sorry, I, th I think it's quite, it, by the time we came to do White Death, I think it was almost fairly distasteful uh, to do a fun war yeah. story. Yeah, exactly. um, we'd, we'd now gone through, you know, the Oliver Stone Vietnam films we'd seen, um, and obviously Saving Private Ryan was a bit later, wasn't it? But, mm. you know, it, it just seemed like the only war film you could, especially films and TV, the only war thing you could do was to decry the war first off. You could not do Kelly's Heroes anymore or something like that. So I, th I think that was very much in the, back, in the back of our minds when we're doing White Death was, was to do... Uh, uh, it had to be... <laughs> Our version of war is hell, which was yeah. probably one of the reasons that we set upon this little known part of the war. Because for me, anyway, I was I was thinking, how are we going to do this? How are we going to how are we going to tell our version mm. of of how bad <laughs> World War One was? Yeah. Because that seemed to be the only option. And um, you know, looking for a way to, to was that intimidating. Yeah, okay. it was. Well, because I just didn't. I per, yeah, I just didn't want to. We just didn't want to go down. Yeah, I don't want to do another platoon. Everyone's seen that. You know, yeah. everyone's seen that sort of. You don't need to retell the same kind of story, similar to that, but just set in another. You know, in another war. It's just. It's. It's just. Yeah, people have seen that. They don't want to see that again. Um, and at the same time, you don't want to batter somebody around the head with with the moral, as well, which would be equally as bad. Yeah. So it was. It was getting the balance right. It was. It wasn't. It's probably one of the most intimidating things that we probably set out to do. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably feel more intimidated now that I'm older, and I, I tend mm. to think more about stuff back at the time. But I, I, it was like, let's jump into it. Yes, you feel the responsibility of trying to get it as historically accurate mm. as possible, and to try and portray the characters as realistically and and. and you know, not portray them in, as most comics tend to work as like superhuman or science fiction, to portray them as real, living, breathing human characters. And um, I certainly felt that, but obviously you realise immediately, well, you know, I've, I didn't fight in World War One. I, I've, I've no actual experience of warfare, but you just hope as a writer that you can empathise and, and you just try and do your best and, and bring it to life. Um, mm. And partly my, some of my favourite scenes in it are actually the smaller character scenes where hopefully we do bring the characters to life and make them, you know, I like to think that you care what happens to them and it's all, you know, it's uh, as a casual. It's probably the first, I, mean, I, I shouldn't say this, I was going to say, it's probably the first story I've ever written that 
doesn't really have a happy ending or you know a lot of the times a lot of times when you work in comics but certainly the stuff I was doing before that was science fiction orientated so this was a chance to do a real story uh, set in, in the real world and just a, just a story that I kind of hoped you could tell in any medium if it would hopefully make a good a good novel or a good film or a good television show we just happened to try to tell that story in as a graphic novel, which probably well, we weren't even calling them with graphic novels back in those days. It was, it was just a you know, comic book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't. I don't think it's really going to be a surprise to you that it doesn't end well. It's, it's, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a, unfortunately a lot of death and, and, and destruction yeah. in it. But actually, one of the interesting characters in it is, I don't call him the villain. He's the anti-hero in it. Uh, Orsini. He's he's the kind of commander. Of the mm. thing, and he has a philosophy, and it's a horrible philosophy. It's an evil philosophy, but it it, it sums, sums up that phrase, "Life is war." So there's mm. kind of you've, you've been thinking through, well, how how do you get through this experience? I guess, and, yeah. and he was that was one particular way mm. in which. He well, he decided to, to turn himself into a, well, almost a figure of hate or a monster, yeah. or. But I liked. I mean, I, uh, again, that's actually one of my favourite scenes. Again, towards, towards the end of the book, where you. Hopefully, maybe you get an insight into this character who's sent men to their deaths and quite coldly and shows no compassion or, or I mean, he's almost cruel in, yeah. in some respects, but he um, he kind of believes what he's doing is, is right, or he, not even so much that he believes it's right, he just believes this is the way the world works and, you know, it's kill or be killed in some ways, and if that means, well, his men get killed while he, while that furthers his career in some way then it works. Interestingly enough we did, I think you probably might not even remember this, we did actually talk about doing a sequel to it which would focus oh, on yes. Orsini ah, right. after the war but as he returns to peacetime and basically finds that all the things he's done don't really <coughs> give him any standing in society and then he gets involved with uh, what would be the early beginning? Well, not the early beginnings, but the mafia of that period, and sort of carries on that way. But well, that's coming after the director's Yeah, it's one of those ones will be in the back burner. It's only been in the back burner for since nineteen ninety nine. So, if uh, we sell a hundred thousand copies, we might consider. Yeah, yeah. A sequel. <laughs> well, what did what did White Death mean for you two when you actually completed it? And okay, it, it didn't set the world on fire, yeah. but it, it obviously meant something creatively to both of you. No, I mean, I mean, I I always go back to it, and I always say said in many many interviews you know it's that it's it's one of the proudest things I'm, I've ever done I, I'm, I'm still immensely proud obviously eight, uh, 16 17 years down the line there are pages I look at and for me personally artwork wise it, I grind my teeth and oh god I could have drawn that better but I have to get over that hurdle that's, that's almost a minor thing it's just I have to see it as a piece of my own history and because of that, um, I, you know, I, I think from the circumstances it came out of and what we all did with it, and, and actually, you know, forming a collective to publish it, going to Angoulême that we did a couple of times, you know, uh, uh, I remember going to Angoulême, you know, saw this suitcase just full of, you know, White Death's book as the heaviest thing I've ever carried in my life, you know, and things like this, you know, just, just kind of, you know, one of better words, flying by the seat of your pants, sort of thing. Um, it, it was it was so different to anything else I'd done, um, and and 
you know the experience gained from that was was incredible and and arguably it led on to it did lead on to indirectly to you know other self-published things and eventually the walking dead which you know I, it, it made me aware of the possibilities of doing stuff for yourself i made no money out of it whatsoever <laughs> but the experience gained and 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 just 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 I suppose the feeling, the proud feeling I have from satisfaction it is, yeah, satisfaction is just, just almost, yeah, worth, worth all the, uh, <laughs> the money spent. And did it change how you can approach, you know, drawing comics? Do you think just that, from that experience? I think, I think, I think subtly, yes. I mean, not majorly. I mean, uh, I mean, after I finished, I went back to drawing. You know, I think I can't remember what I worked on post that. It's probably something for. 2000 or the Dread magazine, something like that. So I was back to pen and ink again, you know. Uh, so, but I had to earn a living somehow. I'd spent all my money. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I had to get back in and, and just do the work for hire stuff. But it had set just a, yeah, something, something, a light had turned on in the back of my head, which would obviously see fruition as the, as the years went, went on. For you, Robbie? Oh, certainly one of the projects I'm proudest of, yeah. Um, I probably view it with a slight frustration in that I would have liked to have done more things along those lines. I mean, since then, I've, you know, it's, I've probably still, it's like Charlie says, you have to make a living, so I've probably done more of the, the science fiction and the, the superhero things than I would have really liked, but um, I would quite like to pursue, not, not war stories necessarily, but just different genres, different kinds of stories in the sort of, in the comics format. I think that's what I'd, I'd, I'd like to do more of. So uh, I'm slightly, I mean, while I'm hugely proud of, I'm still slightly frustrated that I haven't done more things like that. So mm. that's, but that's, that's down to me, isn't it? I have to then <laughs> Was it changing at all? Is it e do you think it'd be easier now to do White Death in 2014 than it was back in 1998? I think I think it'd be easier to to get a publisher, mm. yeah. Um, regardless of our cachet now as creators or whatever, I think it'd be easier to get it published and probably easier to make more of a, 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 a success of it. I think um, I think a lot more people are open to creator own comic books now as they were when we did it. Mm. Um, it was a I won't say it was a new thing. Everyone's people have done creator own comic books yeah. from you know, God, from year dot. But the awareness of them, I think, is, is certainly is a lot more than than it was when we when we first did did it. And that's not nothing to do with White Death per se. I think just the general awareness has got bigger. So I think we could have easily have got it out under a publisher for starters. So I would have had to put my own money in. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. so there would have been that. Um, yeah, the so, market yeah. has the market has changed. I mean, it's still hard to get. Well, it's like most publishing ventures, it's still hard to get things like that off the ground, and you know, uh, get a big enough advance for someone to work on it. Because it, that, that it's a, it's obviously when publishers are looking at publishing uh, graphic novels, the costs are higher for because basically there's an artist has to draw it, a writer writes it, so it's the, it's. Them, they cost more to do than your your regular publishers. So it's still hard to get them out there, but people are more open to to the format. 
And do, is, do you think there's um, something about the let's talk about the form a little bit and, and ask, you know, when you're you're dealing with something like White Death, what what can this form, what can the graphic form do that you know you've talked about films and stuff like that? What what can it do that that can't? Or what, how, how can it do it differently? Do you think? Mm. Well, go on. <laughs> what's this? What's the saying? A picture is worth a thousand words. Or there's what I like about comics is there's something when I first got into comics. In my head, I love novels, I love films. In my head, I thought comics is a combination of both of them. And that's kind of why I, I, I was drawn to it. But obviously, once you start working in it and writing for it, you realise that's nonsense. Comics is a medium in its own right. Mm. And I, I, I just feel there's something powerful about artwork that, uh, rather than photographs or moving in. There's something about, you know, Charlie drew that in a style of artwork that nobody else, you know, nobody else draws like that. That's Charlie's own drawing. So it's a very personal thing that's been put on the paper. It's like, it's as personal as someone's writing style. Or, um, I'm probably not explaining it very well, but it's, it's just, uh, well, the, I the, think there's yeah. something that could be quite evocative about the artwork that you don't get in other mediums. Well, um, it's an intangible thing, isn't it? It's like one of those, um, when you get a combination of great writing and great artwork, um, and you know, obviously the best comic books are of both. If you get a, a brilliantly written comic book that's badly drawn, or a badly written comic book that's brilliantly drawn, it doesn't work. It doesn't work as a comic book. It's as simple as that. So you need you need both, um, and I, I, you know it's 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 a hard one to answer where 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 the combination of the elements sort of make it make it work mm. um, but when they do um, yeah it, it, it's easily as it's you can easily put it on a pedestal as much as you know the, the, the classic a classic novel or a classic movie mm. yeah which was supposed <laughs> to the two uh, you know on either side you know sort of this balancing act and you know like Robbie said the comics are kind of weirdly in the middle of both of them but yet are are um, a medium onto themselves and as much as I, when I'm working, I'm seeing it almost as a movie in my head. Um, I also appreciate the fact that it's not a movie mm. as well. Mm. Listen, why don't we throw it over to the audience? There's a microphone, I think, um, which will come. If you want to stick your hands up, anyone got any questions? One at the back there. Uh, what was the European reaction to it, if any? Um, initially, it's, we, we printed our initial print run it was one one and a half it was one and a half thousand seven hundred and fifty in English, the same in French, um, and uh, we sold out in France. <laughs> I think we sold about three hundred or something. Oh, as I can't remember now. Uh, we never sold out ever in in the UK US market. It was. Which I knew. Um, I knew we were going to have more of a struggle convincing Americans that this was a, a viable form you know, in their superhero-saturated market rather than Europe, which were obviously... You go to Europe, like, say, in Angoulême, and, and you know, every, every genre there has an equal chance of being successful, yeah, which was an exciting prospect for me, especially a guy that was brought up on Marvel comics per se and all I could all I could see were 
that was like, still is pretty much in the American market. You know, if you want a successful property, you've got to draw somebody in spandex mm. who can fire rays out of their hands or whatever. So um, yeah, I wasn't fooling myself. I knew I knew white death was not going to work primarily in the American market. So and it'll be interesting to see after yeah after this print run how how well this one does. Uh, in the UK and the yeah. States and how well the Delcor version does in yeah. France. I'll, b- I'll be asking Delcor soon what, what, uh, what the numbers are. Yeah, I'm and just scared. comparing. I'm always scared to ask that. Yeah. You, you know, <laughs> but it was always very, it was always very well received critically. It was a, oh yeah. yeah. It's, it's, but it's it was never a, yeah. a bad review. But like I said, it, it, was, it was done with the French market in mind right from the get-go. So you know, it is skewed towards that market. So, and, and, and we were, we were sort of right to do it that way because it did, it worked, it worked a lot better over there. Bizarrely, not, not, it hadn't uh, sold to an Italian publisher yet though. No, no, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <laughs> the obvious people to sell it to and no one's, um, yeah. <laughs> we've had a couple of people sort of, haven't we, emailed, yeah. e- emailed over, but it's always sort of just dwindled out. Whether mm. whether we didn't pursue it enough, I don't know. No, it's, I don't know. it's one of those things. This question here in the second, third row, sorry. How long have you been practicing art? Oh, ever since I was about seven, um, six or seven. I remember, I remember my dad bringing home. I was probably about. It's, I think it's seventy. 1972, something like that, 73. Um, I remember my dad bringing home the first issue of Mighty World of Marvel, which was uh, a British reprint of um, The Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four, but done as an anthology and in black and white and done primarily for the British market. And I don't know, some, something in me just, just was hooked into that. And ever since, and I think I was drawing before that, but I didn't know... I was just doodling like kids do at that age and then but after reading that comic book and consequently getting the next issue next week and it yeah buying it weekly after that um all I ever drew after that were comic books I'd set my sights I think at that age I remember saying about eight or nine that that's what I wanted to be a a comic book artist and I've hardly deviated from that path (laughs) fine art didn't interest you well, I did go to art college and I studied film and video um, at uh, uh, down south in Maidstone. Um, but um, I, I did an art foundation course. You know, if you, yeah, you know, most you know, if you're going to go to art college, you're advised to do the art foundation course. And I remember leaving school, still wanting to be a comic book artist. Went to art foundation course. Suddenly introduced to every yeah because obviously you do the art foundation course you're introduced to virtually every single medium that there is at the time so you know painting sculpture printmaking fashion um so i don't know and others i can't remember now but um i did all those and suddenly it just opened my eyes to various other other possibilities and i got really into i mean i've always had a love of film so it was quite easy to sort of get into the idea of being a filmmaker as well. So I did dabble in that for three years, and post that I moved to London for a bit. And uh, yeah, well, that's that's another story. <laughs> but yeah, 
um, I was interested, but I just came back to comic books in the end. It, it remained with you then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, once I got back into it, it was almost like, why the hell did I ever decide to do something else? But There's I no think, embarrassment at all? Uh, what, to towards, go back towards, to? Yeah, it's just because just, we grew up in a culture that, until very recently, does look down on, on the form. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I never, in my own little sort of tiny little life that I had, no, because I knew, in the end, I knew I was good at it, you know, and, 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 and I was better at drawing comics than I was at anything else I've tried to do. So, <laughs> in, in the end, it was, it was a kind of a no-brainer. And no, I didn't really consider the fact that it was, you know, sort of beneath me <laughs> or whatever, even though after coming out of, you know, a fine art, you know, filmmaking course and uh, uh, all of that, the, the high intellect that that entailed, um, no, it, it, it really didn't, it wasn't an issue. I just remember thinking, well, this is what I'm best at. And I, I yeah, I'm a geek. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> there was a question, I think, um, fifth row there, just right in front of you. Uh, my grandfather was wounded in the White War. I wonder if you oh. ever had the opportunity to talk to any of the men who'd fought in that war before when you were doing the research or even after the publication of the book. <laughs> no, I'm afraid no, no. I mean, when I was researching, it was back, I was, you know, I had no access, I didn't know how to contact anybody. It would be very different if I was doing it today because with the internet, you could have mm. put something on Twitter, you could have went out and found people, but at that time, you just, you were literally, I was trawling through books in the library or articles or microfiches at the library, and um, I sat in the Mitchell Library for, a, for an age going through old World War I documentaries to get little bits of footage of, I mean, over the whole term, the White War seems quite recent that these people started to call it that. And um, so, no, it would have been, it would have been great to do it because it would have been so helpful just as me as a writer telling the story to have a, a personal, you know, to the experiences of someone who actually had, had been there would have probably made it a far better book than it, than it is, but you, as I said at the time, I you know I did the best job I could to try and track down the research. But um, did, you know. did your grandfather? Did you say? Did did he talk about the the avalanches? <coughs> no, they were uh, my own family mentioned avalanches. Although my grandfather died when I was still young, uh, he was a he was one of the carabinieri. Yeah, yeah. Valley. Although the mm -hmm. policemen were also paramilitary mm -hmm. units, so they actually fought fighting wars. Yeah. That's what you mean. That was his story, as it were. Perfect. Mm. No. There's one just here, and then I'll get you. Uh, hi. Hello. <coughs> Sorry. Um, your other art, uh, comic books are done in, like, ink. Have you ever thought of going back to, or have you ever gone back to doing, like, chalk and charcoal with your artwork? Um, not really. I mean, there's always the possibility. It's just The White Death was such a unique project that um, I felt that if I use that technique for anything else it almost dilute this project because I you know I chose it specifically to do this book in um yeah never say never again obviously but uh, you, especially need to, you need to find another new technique for a new short well yeah story. precisely yeah but I mean if we ever do do a sequel there's always, well, always yeah, a return to yeah. that but, yeah. the thing about you is doing the chalk and the, the charcoal thing is a, 
you just end up clouds yeah. of dust everywhere. So it's like well, and the Charlie's irony, studio would look as though it'd been a charcoal explosion. Well, well, the irony is that I'm a, quite a tidy, well, very tidy <laughs> person, and I, I actually do, uh, unlike probably 95% of artists, have a very very clean studio uh, by, by the very nature because yeah, most of the work is pen and ink so it, you don't really get messy with that but for that I don't, however many months I did the book for you know I just had to accept it and you know almost you know gird my loins into the fact that I was going to look like pig pen from um, <laughs> Charlie Brown every day because I've just emerged from clouds of charcoal and chalk yeah my drawing board was a yeah was look like you know, a version of the paper yeah. by the end by the end of every day it would just be this sort of grey kind of mess and everywhere was just covered in just charcoal and I was just, you that, also, that was part of the process I hated because it was just going against my sort of you know <laughs> you also had to draw it uh, extra yeah. large as well didn't you because of the, the the amount of detail you could get in the chalk the charcoal pencil you had to, to it was like Twice yeah. the size of well, a regular comic I had to for just, what I just to get. I, I, one thing we talked about, I said to Robbie, I said, we cannot do more than really four panels a page as well, because if you're shrinking it too much, I'm, you know, I'm, I was basically using, you know, I like felt a Neanderthal man almost, you know, with sort of, you know, bits of chalk, you know, that you can't get much, accurate, much accuracy with that. You know, charcoal sticks, so you can imagine, you yeah. know, again, big thick lines. Um, yeah, by, like I say, by its very nature, it had to be big and it had to be minimal panels. Yeah. Uh, probably one of the reasons why the book is actually 100 pages long. Um, we could have probably done it as a, a classic 48-page yeah. yeah. European-French album if, if, we'd have, if we could have done it as, you know, sort of eight, nine, ten panels per page. Mm. Uh, and probably got it. You've sold even more in France then because it would have been the classic <laughs> yeah, shape. It fitted, to, yeah. It would fitted everyone's shells, etc., etc. Yeah. But, you know, um, uh, the, the very nature of the beast, it had to be in that format. So, you know, like I say, I'll, 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 who knows? One day I might fancy drawing something else in charcoal and chalk. I mean, the cover, that was the last thing I did actually, and that was. Yeah. Uh, it was either last late year. last year or early this year. So I have returned to it just, albeit briefly, for a morning or however long <laughs> it took to draw that. But generally, you know, it, it was a very unique thing for the book. There's a question here, this gentleman in the glasses. There's been renewed interest in First World War artists recently, and they covered snow in the Western Front and Russia, as well as the Alps. Have had a chance to examine that and see how they treated uh, the subject? No, I've, I'm probably slightly, just on a purely selfish level, slightly scared to in case everybody else does it better than, than, <laughs> than, than I did. So no, I haven't, I haven't really uh, cared. It's, it's just one of it's, I tend to be, when I write stuff, I tend to be immersed myself in research at the time, but then when I finish the project, sometimes it's as if your, your mind's gone blank. Cause I can't, I mean, I don't remember much of the the research and the stuff I was reading that if I was going back to it then I would start you'd be you know your brain starts to create every sort of as much information as possible so I can write about something but if I when I'm not actually working on the story I, I, I tend to you know I haven't well it, well it was it was funny wasn't it when 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 the original white death launched um, it, 
we, we had come out just virtually within weeks of, of, a, of a French book by the acclaimed comic book writer, artist Tardy, and he had drawn, written and drawn this, which has now become a French comic book classic. It's just called The War in the Trenches, obviously set on the Western Front. And um, we were always wondering if Tardy, who was this big French superstar, had heard of our little book, you know. <laughs> and, um, and it did filter down that he had heard of it. And, uh, you know, we never really got what he thought of it. But I always got the impression he, he thought we were ripping him off. <laughs> <laughs> How dare these interlopers come into France? And, uh, yeah. You know, so, so it, it, there was a slight intimidation there when, when, uh, when, we, when we launched because <laughs> of the comparison that we thought, oh, God, are we going to be compared to this major release in French comic books which did actually go on to sell you know, I presume a couple of shed copies. loads <laughs> yeah. a couple of copies more than ever perhaps sorry a couple of questions here as well if you were working today in the position that you were in publishing White Death um, forming collectives and you know without the clout that you have now if you were doing all of this again in 2014 is there anything that you would do differently and are there any new opportunities that you would now take advantage of like social media or oh absolutely yeah I mean as, as I said before it's it's it is a lot easier to do it nowadays especially obviously you know advertising wise you know there's all there's various you know obviously with social networking and everything now you can get the information out it's all yeah. all that is fairly obvious I mean you're talking about if we were in a similar position now so without the clout um, um. Yeah, well, um, the internet certainly opened stuff. Mm. It's very easy to get. Nowadays, it's very well. Not, I've done much of it, but it's very easy to just you know you you can put a, a story or a comic strip out on the internet, and it doesn't cost it won't cost you any money, but yeah. other than your time and effort of writing and drawing the story. And this was back in the and even even actual printing hard copies, printing costs have come down yeah. quite a bit. So I mean, it was it was expensive to print. It was a well, Charlie. <laughs> I can see that. I don't actually. I think I bought him lunch at the time or something. Maybe just to, thanks, Charlie. Um, but money well spent. But um, even printing costs have come down. So I know. I mean, there are quite a few people self-publishing stuff, and it's very professional looking in terms of the printing and the packaging. But it's much cheaper than it would have been back, you know, in 1999, I mean, 2000. But the internet is. If you if you're writing or drawing comics, it's it's the best best way to get it out there because really you want people to see your stuff. Mm. I mean, who, who who knows? We could have. I, d I don't know if we would have come to this decision today now, but we could have easily have you know produced it, produced the artwork, put it all online, mm. and then seen if there was enough interest. Then we could have printed it. You yeah. Know, you don't, you don't know. We could have gone down that route, which you know is is a lot safer route to travel than than yeah. obviously what we had um, sixteen years ago, which was just literally flying by the seat of your pants and just fingers crossed, hoping that people are going to yeah. buy this book. You know, and you've you, you know back then there was limited resources as to to telling retailers about mm -hmm. or bookshops yeah, yeah. or just getting it out there. Yeah, nowadays technology has moved on and made that. A hell of a lot easier. Maybe one more question. The gentleman here has been asked, desperate to ask a question. 
Make to it, keep it quick, though, I'm afraid. Make it a good one. It, you talked about the um, superhero-saturated American comics market. How much do you think the English-language um, comics market has changed since the mid-90s or since the mid-80s, say, um, in terms of diversity of genres and so forth, and in terms of the volume of different things that get sold as opposed to very small things? It, it's changed a lot, and it hasn't at the mm. same time. I mean, I'm, I'm particularly excited about uh, the industry in America more so now, um, because certain comics have come out um, in the last 10 years that, that have proven that there is more beyond superheroes. I mean, obviously, Walking Dead, yes, I know, but um, <laughs> that there are certain other comics, and, and, you know, at the risk of appearing to be the company man, you know, the majority of them have come from Image. And you, but what's great about Image, it's gone from being... Um, a when it first started this creator actually create our own comic mm. book company but unfortunately the creators then all they wanted to do was superheroes then when that all sort of collapsed it became almost a tiny little insignificant indie publisher but then something happened with 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 image you know that it started to grow <laughs> And yeah, a lot of it's down to Eric Stevenson, who's the, the editor-in-chief, arguably, I can't remember his job title, but um, the, base, the publisher of, of Image Comics. He, he's sort of kind of taken it over and, and um, he's just brought in uh, over a period of time creators just to, just, just to raise its profile. And now what I'm finding is, you know, creators are, are coming in from American creators and British creators are coming over to Image who have been working on superhero titles for a long time and doing their own thing and are publicly going you know, on social media and everything saying this is what they've always wanted to do, which I think is, is bleeding down to the public and, and the public are seeing this and are, are now sort of seeing, yeah, with the fanboys and everything, are seeing beyond the fact that there is more to life than Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, whatever. And... Oh, this is quite interesting. This isn't about superheroes, and it's creator-owned, and and it's new concepts. Mm. So, so it, it it's it's a small chink in the armor of the big two at the minute. Uh, hopefully, it'll be a larger chink. Mm. And uh, and it's not just Image. There are other companies out there doing the same thing. Image are probably the big poster boy of of this mm. sort of renaissance at the time. So, um, it's I, I think it's an exciting time. For, I think, for I think yeah, I think things have definitely changed for the better. I think there's still a long way to go. But the very fact that we are sitting here at the Edinburgh Book Festival talking about White Death, and there are numerous other, you know, graphic novel or comic book related events on at the festival this year. Five years ago, that probably wouldn't have been the case. There wouldn't have been. You may have won the event, and it would have been a, you know. Are very famous, so it, it's yeah. it's slowly but surely moving. I mean, I look forward to the point, but it's okay. Unfortunately, <laughs> we, we are out of time. We're actually over time. Charlie is back again this evening. The mess will be takes left to, to hear me talking about The Walking Dead. Um, we're both going over to the signing session now in in uh, the tent next door. Um, Robbie's got a certain Doctor Who comic coming out in a few months, so that might be one <laughs> to look out for. But please, just finally, then say thank you very much for our guests, Robbie and Charlie. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.